Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Because it's through the actual embodied gospel that the written gospel comes to be believed. It's through seeing the gospel embodied that you can recognize. You go back to the written gospel and think, that's how this happens. That's why this person is this way. How did early Christians preserve and canonize the gospel? And what does it mean for us? Professor Matthew Thomas tells the story on Almost Good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Odinitz, and I will be asking interesting people who have thought about the big questions to share their conclusions, to explain what we know, how we know it, and why we think we know it. I hope this format, in relationship and dialogue, and back and forth, may help us approach the truth and to have a really good time doing it. If you should want to take the conversation a step further, I invite you to please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Returning to continue our discussion from last week is Professor Matthew Thomas. He teaches the Old and New Testaments, patristics, and biblical languages at the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology in Berkeley. Matthew Thomas, welcome back. Thank you for letting me come join you again, Chris. When we left off last week, and new listeners may wish to go back one episode to hear that first part, we were talking about the earliest extant versions of the New Testament. What can you tell us about the dating of the Gospels? Well, this is a great question, and it's difficult for me to answer this in a way that's succinct because I have so much fun with these things that it's kind of one of those things where I'll start going on and on, and then you know the audience will leave, and I'll just be talking to myself, and I won't, I won't even notice. Um, so the the easiest, if you're going to just start, the first thing you want to say is that nobody knows exactly when the Gospels are written. Because I would say a fairly wide range of dates is defensible, um, it, it can often end up being a sort of Rorschach test where, you know, somebody <laughs> who has a certain kind of background or a certain sort of theological predisposition is going to give you a, you know, a certain date in an earlier range and another person with a different disposition will go and give you a later date. And what's interesting is I actually think that the historical thing that's most significant when it comes to dating the Gospels isn't actually something that is in the Gospels at all. It's not. It's just not one of the Gospels. It's it's the Book of Acts, and it's the dating of the Book of Acts, um, because you know everybody agrees that Acts is the second part of a two part you know volume that Luke goes and puts out. So, Volume One is Gospel of Luke. Uh, volume Two is the Acts of the Apostles, and so if Acts is Volume Two, then Luke must 
precede Acts. And so that's fairly straightforward. This isn't controversial. And it seems as though Luke as well is making use of other sources. And so he says that in the beginning, you know, there's many others, Theophilus, who try to go into layout and account of what's happening. I'm going to try to, you know, do this in a way that is orderly so that you can know the certainty of what it is that you believe. So he refers to these earlier accounts. Most people think that either, uh, you know, the Gospel of Mark or some other early, you know, kind of gospel thing, whether one believes in a Q source or something like that. Everybody knows that there's sources that are preceding, you know, probably earlier gospels that Luke is making use of as well. So Luke's not not the first one in the sort of gospel ordering. So if we look at the book of Acts, we can say, you know, what what could go and tell us, you know, when this thing is written? Are there any clues? There's more than one position on this. And so I don't want to go in to tell you, hey, this is a definitive anything. I'm just going to tell you what I mix, I guess I could say makes, makes the most sense to me. Um, the book of Acts, if you recall, it ends just before uh, the, the trial of St. Paul. And so we know that Paul, he's made it to Rome. He's safe there. Uh, he's, you know, preaching the gospel freely. He's doing so for two years. And then it just goes and ends. You think, well, that's a weird way to end the story. <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of strange. Like, why does it why does it go and end here? Well, there's there's more than one reason that you can give for that. Uh, I have never found a reason for why it is that Acts ends when it does than the fact that Luke is actually there with Paul, and this is when he's writing it, and this is this is it. This is when he's writing a thing. And so that's wow. when it goes and ends because that's, that's the story up to this point. And we know, and you, by, and you also believe that there is a Luke, right? We kind of talked about this before, but like Luke it says Luke. So there is a Luke. It's not like the source we call Luke or something. The, the Luke in the but, source. Uh, no, Dr. Luke. The, yeah. Yeah. This, in this instance, um, I don't think that there's any great deal of controversy in going and identifying this, this person as, as Luke. Um, okay. I, is it something that we know with absolute certainty? No, because historically we don't know anything with absolute certainty. We just look yeah. at the evidence that we have. And the evidence for somebody, you know, named Luke doing this is, is quite strong. And we know that, you know, for judging by the, the latter part of Acts, that these are all the famous we passages. And so it kind of yeah. alternates between the stuff that, you know, Paul is doing and telling stories to you. The we thing and all of this, you know, the you know the, the the shipwreck going around Crete, landing on Malta, and then finally making up to to Rome. All of these are we passages, and so it seems as though Luke is present with Paul yes. as all of this is going on. And if you're going to ask okay. yourself, think, okay, well, is there a reason why? Luke would go and end the book of Acts, you know, in this point, if, if, you know, there was actually a lot more that happened afterwards and he just didn't want to go and fill it in for whatever reason. I have never come across a account of why that would be that I have found to be more persuasive than the simpler solution, which is that this is just when Luke happens to be writing. And so he doesn't know what happens in the future. Um, because of course, if you're thinking of, you know, the, the, there's a few people who have spoken and written really well of this. One of them um, is the, uh, the, the great German biblical scholar from about a hundred years ago, Adolf von Harnack, who is usually, you know, kind of in a more liberal modernist school, but here he just says, look, this whole story has been leading up to the trial of St. Paul. That's what this is. This all has been leading up to. Is he going to be found guilty? Is he not going to be found guilty? What's what's going to happen? And he just says, if if Luke 
has ended this knowing what happened in Paul's trial, but without telling you it is a literary crime of the first order because everything just from a literary standpoint <laughs> has been leading up to this. This is where it's, this is where it's all been going. It would be, um, I guess you could say it, it would almost be like ending one of the gospels in the middle of Holy week and not letting you know what's going, what goes and happens to Jesus afterwards. Uh, like uh, this, this is like, it has not yet reached its, its climax yet. And I have not, found a persuasive reason for why that would be besides that this is all that luke knows because this is when he happens to be writing um so if that is the case uh and again there's other ways to explain it but i just i don't find any particularly per- persuasive if that is the case um then it, the question is when is this actually going on and, and the dates are usually between you know 60 62 and 64 that Luke would be writing Acts in Rome if this is the, the providence, if we identified that correctly. Um, if that's the case, then his gospel would predate that. Uh, how, and again, you can say whenever you think that that would, that would be. Um, but it would be earlier than that, so in, either in the earlier 60s or in the you know, late, late 50s, something like that, perhaps. Um, again, we don't know that for sure, but um, if we're just... Uh, if we think of these two things being written in fairly quick succession, we can say something like that. And then we would have Gospels, uh, particularly the Gospel of Mark, um, the relation between Matthew and Luke is a little bit controverted, and there's more than one way of putting together the evidence. Um, but you would have Mark at least preceding that. And so who knows, maybe when Paul is in Caesarea and he's in jail there, uh, it seems as though you have both Mark and Luke kind of coming and going through that that prison that's uh, over by the coastline, um, you know, outside of, of Jerusalem, kind of, you know, going going down from there. And so maybe that's, you know, if, if Luke is using Mark as a source, maybe that's where he gets it because Mark has already written stuff by that point. And you could say, you know, the late fifties and like that. So that's a bit of, you know, kind of hard evidence in a sense. And now it's, it's not hard in the sense of, Hey, there's an actual tangible thing. Um, But we're looking at, you know, something that we can actually, I think date with a, I would say a reasonable degree of confidence with the book of Acts. And if Acts is sometime between 62 and 64, then at least the gospels of Luke and then probably Mark would precede that. Well, and that's not too far off from what you told us last time that Galatians and Thessalonians were the first epistles, the first Christian writings that we have. Exactly. Exactly. So, so yeah. So you have uh, with uh, with Thessalonians and with Galatians, most folks are going to date those either within uh, the mid to mid to late forties or the early fifties, and then the rest of the Pauline corpus going falling from that. But we should add that there are no actual papyri from that time. That what we have, the things that we're using that we read the gospel are. Uh, copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of that, and so we're using you know the the text as evidence by by what it says in the text, not you know some way to carbon date the fibers of whatever. That's correct. That's absolutely correct. Which is, I mean, if you just think of, I, I guess you could look at you know um, more uh, closer to contemporary uh, examples of significant text. If you're going to say. I don't know, the Declaration of Independence, something like that, something that is within our same cultural context, which isn't that long ago. Um, In general, we're not, you know, while we do have, I believe, still preserved, you know, an originalist there, uh, most of the time when we're engaging with the Declaration of Independence, we're not dealing with, 
you know, that, hey, I need to go back and see the original manuscript. We're dealing with copies of that. Um, so when you and I go in and talk about this, it's, you know, we now have this digitized or we have it in the book somewhere, et cetera. Um, because in general, paper doesn't last forever. <laughs> it's yeah. not one of those. Uh, right. There are a few things that last forever and paper is not one of them. And so copying is just part of the process. Yeah. And, the, and they're not really thinking about us. That's the problem every historian faces is all these people long ago, they don't care about my needs. They, they're trying to pass this paper around with their friends and get the message out. And yeah. It's folded or rolled up and put in a saddlebag or whatever. Yeah. Well, what you, I guess what you do know is even if, even if they're not necessarily, you know, thinking to themselves, oh gosh, I need to help Chris out 2000 years from now. What you, right. what you can tell is you can tell that these writings were viewed as very, very, very significant because they're copied so much. They're copied over and over and over again. They're copied so so frequently. Um, and so there is, there's absolutely a, a recognition of the significance of them. It's not just like, oh, here's one thing sort of sitting around. No, it's copied over and over and over and over again. And that's how part of why you get to, you know, text criticism, because when you copy something over and over, invariably, you know, you'll change the word order or something like that. And so that's why you have a whole a whole science of, of textual criticism. Yeah, but also like people would notice if you made a significant significant change because they've seen other, you know, because there's no there's no printing press. So everything that is copied is copied word for word, line by line, page by page. And how how what kind of fidelity do we have? Um, or yeah. let me ask you like this. I, I, I looked at original the earliest papyri I could find in my very amateurish internet <laughs> search yeah. since last time we talked a week ago. And I found just in the, as the further back I went, the less there was, of course. And in the first century, there's teeny tiny fragments. But really, by the time you get to a, a, a real papyrus that says something I could read on it, we're like in the second century, maybe third century. And I looked at one and I'll attach it in the show notes because it's amazing. Yeah. It's something, I bet you already know this. It's called Papyrus 66. It's in Switzerland at this Bodmer library. And I can totally read it with my super novice beginner Greek. It's all capital yeah. letters. Uh, and the, like, even though they don't put spaces in between words, it clearly says anarchy in the logos. And it just like, I can see it. And it's, it's written in such big capital yeah. letters, kind of the way we would write it for children, you know, today, the cat sat sort of yep. thing. Is it because they're, 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 is that the way people actually wrote like all block capital letters or is it because they're writing to a semi-literate audience all over the place and they're not sure because when i read when i read things in the 16th century like on the working on the spanish empire it is such chicken like paleography is trying to figure out what what the heck these you know scribes are doing with their with their shorthand and and yeah yeah but that yeah yeah. absolutely so what you tend to find is within the period that we're engaging with so you you know first century, second century, et cetera, um, that it tends to be that script that's there. So the unsealed script where it's all capital letters and you don't have any, there's, there's no spaces in between. Um, and you'll have, as you get to the end of a, um, sort of the end of the, the page and you're in the middle of a word and it'll just sort of pick up on, you know, the next letter we're going to pick up on the other, other, you know, the next, uh, the next line. And so it is one of those things where you have to get used to reading that way. Yeah. Um, okay. I have a second comment, uh, and it's this, um, 
the fact and when last time toward the end of our last discussion you 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 spoke about a, a class you taught a year ago about the gospels and you said yes. that each of these has a very distinct perspective but they're talking about the same story and you compared it to looking at a mountain from four different directions one standing to the south one to the east and that they see they're seeing the same mountains but they're seeing different facets uh, and and angles um, and so this is the argument I want to run by you uh, that I've been thinking about this week is the fact that the Gospels disagree about things, the the order things happened or the variance in genealogy of Christ between Luke and Matthew or what happened at his interview with Pilate. Did he have things to say? Was he just quiet? Like that these would then therefore not be plot holes in some hastily written TV show, but they're rather deliberate versions of really long considered narratives transmitted over centuries, written over and over and over again, often by the same scribe, by people who, who understood them and the points of incongruity and put them in there on, on purpose or no. I, yeah. So I, I would say that uh, if I'm going to restate what you just said, yes, I please. would say that um, I, w- I would affirm, which I think is what you are affirming, that the places where you have material that is unique and distinct to each gospel, that that is not unintentional. That that is not unintentional. And to go and to try to uh, take the things out that are distinct or are unique uh, is itself, in a a sense, to betray what it is that God in his providence has given to us. Um, Because we have four witnesses and we have four vantage points. And even though if you're, you know, if you're going through the, you know, the main parts of the story, et cetera, uh, they're all clearly talking about the same, the same thing. There are four witnesses that each have their own integrity and they're four witnesses that are not in any sense trying to deliberately coordinate with one another. Uh, it's a bit like if you, you know, if you had, uh, you know, if you had, I don't know, some sort of crime that happened and you call in four witnesses, you know, independently of one another that are going to go and say whatever it is they're going to say about, about the incident, uh, but they're not going to do so at the same time. They're not going to be going and trying to coordinate their stories. Um, I think that you would have something like what we have with these four gospels and that they're all, they're not all going and telling you everything that they could tell you about every, every single incident. Uh, that's just, that's just not how it works. Nor when they're reporting, you know, the same incident, do they give you all of the precise same details? Cause again, that's just not how real life works either. And so if you think of, for instance, if we went to the Warriors game last night and you said, Oh, what was at the Warriors game? Can you tell me what happened? Well, the thing is, this is there's a lot of things that happen at the Warriors game. If you go, <laughs> if you're just talking like mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you're just talking a two and a half hour basketball yes. game, there's a lot of things that happen in the two and a half hour basketball game, and there's all kinds of things that you could bring out or that I could bring out if both of us went to the game and saying, "Oh, this is the things that happened," uh, or "This is the things that happened," and you, from your vantage point, as somebody who Let's say that you just, you love free throws. All you think about is free throws. You can't sleep at night because you dream about free throws. Um, You might be telling me about all the free throw percentage and what, you know, one player was doing, you know, another thing like that. And you're going to be bringing that out more um, than perhaps I might because I just like 
to see people jump really high. I'm like, wow, that guy, he jumped really high, he yes. dunked the ball. And I'll go be telling you about that. And if you go and you put both of our stories together, it's not as though it's going to be like, okay, so which one of you was really at the Warriors game? Tell me the truth now because you're not saying the identical thing. No, like the way that real life works is that you have a vantage point. I have a vantage point. You have seats you were sitting in. I have seats I was sitting in. You have things you're interested in. I have things I'm interested in. You have an audience that you're talking to. I have an audience that I'm talking yeah, to. Yeah, but there's a problem with this analogy, and that is because one day you and I will both be dead, and our kids will have heard us tell about um, the Warriors game, and then their kids will tell them. And by the time it gets to our great-great-grandchildren, they'll have the same thing because they'll have taken out the part where I was like, oh, man, look at number 30. Look at him go. And and then you're like, oh, this is the part where the guy dropped the peanuts on my foot or, or whatever happened. Like all that, all that will turn into one narrative. And yet here, that's not happening here. They they kept it right. Each scribe, each generation, they kept it. Now, what's why? Why? And what does yeah. it mean? No, this is this is fantastic. So let me ask you a question, Chris. Um, have you heard of the Dia Tesseron? No, tell me what that is. The Dia Tesseron uh, is made by Tatian in the second century. Uh, so sometime around like 150, 160 AD. And the Dia Tesseron is actually Tatian's attempt to produce a one volume gospel. So what he does is he takes the four gospels, you know, as they exist and as they're in circulation, and everything like that, and as they're, you know, they're known to the early church, it says, I'm going to take these four gospels and I'm going to make a synthesis of them. I'm going to make a gospel harmony. And, um, you know, we'll go and use that. Yes. So instead of having four books, we'll have one book and we'll kind of, we'll take all of the details. We'll synthesize them into, you know, just one. And what's interesting is that you can still find places within Christianity where the, the Dia Tesseron is quite valid. And so I believe that there are still Syriac churches that huh. use the Dia Tesseron for, you know, for their readings of, of the gospel. But what's actually quite interesting is that the overall reaction to the Dia Tesseron was itself negative. It was itself negative. And the reason for that, or at least not if you're going to say not negative, uh, it wasn't accepted yes. as, you know, hey, this should be a normative standard. And the reason is there is something providential and God-given to the way that God has provided these unique witnesses with these unique vantage points. And when you go and try to filter that out and when you just try to say, no, let's all make it into one thing, you're invariably going to be losing something you're going to be losing something uh it's part of you know this is this is i don't i don't want to be mean to like the niv for example because i i really i, I like the niv as a translation i grew up reading it as as a kid niv is new international version and it's the one you often get as soon as you That's google correct. something from the bible there's a similar thing that a you know something like the niv will go and do when not trying to coordinate the details of the gospel but trying to coordinate the language of the gospel because the NIV, you know, quite famously wants to go and to make it so that, the, you know, the Bible is going to be written at a fifth grade reading level so that it's accessible for mm -hmm. everybody. So that's that's great. I mean, I think that's a that's a there's a I think a laudable yeah. goal that's there and saying we want as many people to be able to read the gospel as possible. The difference, their difficulty is the four gospel writers and not just the four gospel writers because everybody does. But what we're, since that's what we're talking about. Four gospel writers have quite different voices. They have quite different idiom. They have 
quite a different, I guess you could say, lexical range. And so the way that Luke sounds, Luke's voice and his vocabulary, the way that he puts things together, it's very different from Mark's voice. And so what, you know, something like the NIV goes and does, it ends up doing, I think, a small bit of, you know, the potential error that you see with rotation of going and taking some of that individuality of the witness away and making it so instead of actually hearing the real witness with the real details that they're going recounting in their own voice, um, instead it kind of homogenizes it into something which is, you might say, easily accessible, valuable as a tool, as I think, you know, the NIV is, but still less than, uh, I guess you could say, it has less than the full impact of the individual voices heard as individual voices. And that's been the judgment of the church throughout the centuries, that these these voices as individual voices, even if you have to go and do work afterwards to say, okay, well, how do we harmonize this with this? Or how do we coordinate this with this? Still, it, the, you don't want to go and lose those individual voices. Uh, you want to preserve them as they are because they're true and you know authentic original witnesses. Okay, so, and I think that's true anytime you try to uh, synthesize the, if you're Franco Zeffirelli and you're making a movie about the life of Jesus, you have to do this too, except for we all know that when, you know, the, the film director makes it, he's, he's changing the, he's adding his own layer of interpretation, and we all know that, and, if, and everything he chooses is, a, you know, every, whatever the setting is, whatever the stable is going to look like, where, how big the cross is going to be, what is Pontius Pilate, how is he dressed, like, all of that stuff is all editorial, and all of it is is an artistic choice, which I, I suppose this kind of redaction that you're describing pretends it's not doing that, which which is the problem. The thing with the Gospels that's interesting is that they aren't redacted. They aren't harmonized. Right. Um, which also is what you were saying about the Acts of the Apostles, like where you leave it, you don't touch it. Don't touch yeah, it. exactly. I, you know, somebody, somebody could have gone, you know, uh, if it, you know, say that uh, Acts does go and end, in you know in 62 or 64 well paul's martyrdom was just a couple years after that and you think well gosh if you if if the if the if the death of jesus christ was you know was what it was was as impactful as it was um and of course jesus christ resurrected so slightly different because nobody thinks paul is resurrected (laughs) but still if you're thinking of you know early christians they love martyr stories they love seeing the way that you know the way that christ went and suffered the way that you know they as those who are filled with his spirit that the way that they go and they suffer in a way that ends up being transformative you know for the people around them so we have tons of early martyr stories and you're thinking of gosh this does end in 62 there's only you just got to wait a couple years and you can get you know the cool martyr story you know story of saint saint paul you get to the one of saint peter on too because of of course the first you know third about of a book of acts is about saint peter you can put them both on there you just put them on the end of the book of acts it's like a great ending and it's not there yeah there's no the book of acts just ends (laughs) paul's in paul's on house arrest in rome he was there for two years, yes, and that's it. And so there's there's a well, there's a sense in which what's what's cool about you know these these you know the rise of the New Testament is they're they're not touched, they're not redacted, they are the witnesses that that they are. And we might want more information. We might wish that somebody had said, "Oh, we're going to go and give you the epilogue, or we're going to give you you know whatever happens to be." And in some ways, you can get stuff like that from the writings of the early church fathers, but the writings themselves they just tend to not not be touched they are what they are and there's a there's an authenticity that i think is um 
is is really cool. I think historically, even if one doesn't you know come at this from a standpoint of faith, or at least doesn't doesn't yet, uh, there's something about you know getting these uh, in a sense unprocessed uh, you know witnesses unharmonized, unhomogenized. That seems to me a tremendously important point because the first thing you said about loving martyr stories is. Uh, so obvious. Even today, when we're, you know, I think we're, we feel more removed from 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 these events. Like the fact that people paid with their lives and gave gave their lives to insist that this is true and, and happened exactly as it is written. I think that is a powerful testimony. Everybody who is willing to to die to insist that something is true, that's serious serious evidence, right? I'm not gonna I'm, I'm not gonna die to to, to for uh, some a metaphor or, or some lovely allegory, you know, for, uh, for Frodo Baggins or Luke Skywalker <laughs> or anybody else, right? Like that's not worth my, it's a lovely story. It's not, I'm never, I'm not dying for that. The second point, which I think we don't think about at all is, um, the fact that they didn't touch it. They didn't edit. They didn't adapt and change and make corrections with time is such reverence because today we, we really esteem primary sources, Hmm. but back then nobody did. Nobody did. Everything was plagiarism. Nobody considered it as a bad thing. Like the the thing to do as a writer was to just steal lines from Cicero and pass them off as your own. And nobody said like, Oh, shame (laughs) on you. It was like, Oh no, what nice, good job. What, what an excellent rhetorician you are. Right. And that, that, I think that was true until just the last couple centuries. And so the fact that they did not do that, they did not say, oh, I, I, here's, a, here's an error, let me fix it. They're like, no, this is the way Paul put it down or Luke put it down. Um, that's amazing to me because it goes so much opposite of the intellectual tradition of, of uh, people who came before us. So can you tell us about how they kept this un, unadulterated for these centuries and ultimately settle upon a canon uh, how did how did that how did that happen? How's that process? Yeah, so you know, in a sense, because we're getting to history that uh, we we don't necessarily uh, have tons of attestation to, in, in the sense that you know there uh, there are no video recordings of you know what was happening in you know say 100 AD uh, with you know the sort of means of textual transmission or uh you know as, as far as you know canonical writings etc um so in a sense we have to go and to put things together via inference some of the ways that we can do that is if we you know if we look at the actual hard data that we have from the, the manuscripts um of you know what it, what we now know as, as the new testament um you know we can see that from a very early period they are copied they're copied tons they're copied they're they're sort of everywhere we see we see uh, attestation to them um and you can see this both with the hard evidence itself so what we have in the manuscripts and then as i mentioned with the apology of aristides in about 125 you have aristides a christian philosopher going and talking to the emperor hadrian and saying just making this public appeal saying hey our writings are around you should go and read them um and he has again some sort of confidence that he those are they're easily accessible and they're also in some way going to be intelligible for him uh if he wants to see what these things are like um you see a similar attestation to uh in in justin martyr's dialogue with trifo uh which purports to be taking place around 135 um what what happens is uh you know justin and trifo are talking back and forth and then trifo goes and concedes at one point and says yeah I, you know i i can't believe that anyone could follow 
the precepts of your so-called savior because I've I've read them. I've read these things, and I just don't think anybody can actually do what he what he says that you know you should you should do. And it seems as though he's thinking of you know the kinds of things and the beatitudes and etc. But he, a Jewish guy, you know, one thirty five, he's read the Christian writings too. So they clearly seem yes. to be in circulation and you know fairly well well known by this by this point. Um, so if you're thinking oh, how what's the process? So if you're going to take Paul for instance, how is it that you know? How is it that his his writings would would be preserved? If we look in um, analogous kinds of situations within the ancient world, the way that ancient letter what letter writing tended to work was that if you were writing a letter, um, you tended to keep a copy of the letter that you wrote as well. And so we have a lot of examples of this from the ancient world. Um, you can again you can anything with an ancient ancient letter writing uh there's a great book uh by a guy named steve reese called uh, paul's large letters uh, which is looking at um the way that paul's writing techniques and everything like that goes and corresponds to the conventions that you find that we see attested in somebody like you know cicero or you know tacitus kind of fill in the blank um and so that's it's we actually know a lot about letter, ancient letter writing we also know that if we go you know a couple centuries later to jerome and augustine they're both they're both keeping letters in the sense of you know they uh they keep copies of whatever all the stuff that they that they've, that they've written is you know along with the copy that they're going to send out and they also recognize as you just see in ancient letter writing in general that uh they're they're kind of writing for a broader audience when they're writing to each other because whenever you have a letter from somebody who's pretty well known um if i you know get a letter from barack obama if he goes and sends me a letter the chances of me just going and sort of keeping that, oh, cool, I got a letter from Barack Obama. And he, I'll just put this in my drawer. Pretty, pretty small. Uh, pretty, pretty, pretty small. And especially if it's something where it's like, you know, I am, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm a leader. If I'm a person in authority, well, then, you know. If you get I, a lot of letters, yeah. Exactly. So let's say I'm the governor of California and, you know, Obama goes and writes me a letter, says like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I want you to go and do this. I want you to do this, 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 et cetera. And it's, it, chances are what this is, unless it is, you know, marked as really a private correspondence, like he's telling me all those deep, dark secrets. Chances are this is something where it's meant to go and to demonstrate in, in a way, affirm my authority and whatever it is that I'm doing. So if you think of like Paul's correspondence yeah. with Timothy, something like that, um, that's a good way to interpret what's happening there. So if you're thinking the actual material preservation of these writings um, with letter writing, because you have people in general keeping copies of their own letters one of the the hypotheses for white is that you have a pretty stable collection of pauline writings which goes back to very early in you know christian histories because paul just kept a copy of the stuff he has written and so it's kind of like you don't mm -hmm. have to worry about anybody else going you know kind of canonizing anything the things that he wrote are well known you know around uh you know around the ancient world where he was operating but he also had copies of the things that were there which is why you would have the kind of stability that you have attested so so early on so that's a possibility um that would explain the evidence that we have pretty well but again that's just that that's just a hypothesis that's not an absolute kind of certainty now yeah. and then says some someone down the line says like oh paul was really important we should copy these over a second time so that they stay longer yeah, so I guess you don't really have to. You don't have to get very far uh, down down the road as far as like you know. Yeah. Uh, there's not there's not a whole lot of development there because we already know, uh, you know, when we get by the time we get to like you know Ephesians, Colossians, that you have uh, exchange of letters between <laughs> the communities, uh, and so 
the things that was written to one, they should go and exchange this with the other. So already within Paul's lifetime, you have circulation of these things. And again, because Paul was valued the way that he was valued, again, you don't have to read very far in the book of Acts to go and see this. Um, the chances are that they would just go and kind of circulate it and just be like, oh, well, here you go, this is it. And then that, the idea that they're not going to go and copy this down as well um, is kind of hard to imagine. Uh, it's kind of hard hard to imagine uh, and, and also just wouldn't accord well with the material evidence that we have and having so many copies of these things on the place. So they're clearly, you know, value highly uh, by early Christians. And the same goes for the other apostolic writings that we have uh, from Christians. So that's a, a bit of sort of the material question and a bit of the, you know, the process as far as how does this stuff get preserved? Okay. One point that I, I just want to want to say, uh, which I think is, is important is we're talking about all this Bible stuff and it's great. I think it's fantastic. I love it. This is what I do for a living. I think it's really interesting. I think it's really important. I think it makes a huge difference in, you know, in, in real life. Um, but at the same time, even as a biblical scholar, um, I have to say that, the, you know, Christianity, Catholicism, it is not a religion of the book. It is not a religion of the book. The book is extremely important. These texts are extremely important, but it's fundamentally a religion of the incarnation. It's fundamentally a religion of the incarnation. And I think that that holds both in Christ's time and in our time. Um, it's, it's, I don't know if you were coming across you know, the dictum that um, there's very few people who are going to read a Bible, um, but everybody will read a Christian. There's very few people who are going to read a Bible, but everybody will read a Christian. Um, not a whole lot of people on the street are going to go and say, oh, I want to go and look at this yes. book that you think is yes. a holy book and see if I, you know, if I think it's true or not, evaluate the claims on my own. Most people aren't going to be bothered to do that. But everybody is looking at your life. And there's a sense in which, in looking at your life, the question, even if they don't know if they're asking it, is, is the incarnation true? Is the incarnation true in the sense that is the incarnation of Christ, however it's, you know, however that you make sense of that historically, is that in some way replicated in this person's life? Do you actually see the divinity that, you know, that marks who God is? Do you see something supernatural that's inexplicable, you know, inexplicable uh, by just natural means operating within this person's life? Uh, and that's actually, in a sense, that's kind of the more fundamental question. And if you, and once one goes and recognizes that, yeah, God is, you know, God himself is living and active and does things in, in people's lives that can't be accounted for in any, any other way. And then you recognize that continuing, not just, you know, not as an aberration or funny, but something that's happens, you know, throughout history all the time. And by the time you look back at the first century, first century, you think, oh, okay, well, of course you have all these crazy things happening. Um, and of course you have all these witnesses that, you know, value all of this so much. And so that's just to say, this isn't, you know, giving the canon answer. But I actually of, think that that point is more important and maybe we'll put the canon question aside for, yeah. for another time. And I think it goes kind of what we were saying earlier about martyrdom. What are some other things, you know, what are some other things that are the incarnation, the living God in the hearts of these early Christians? Is it the way they share in community? Is it the way that, you know, um, that they see no distinction, male or female, Greek or Jew, slave or free? They're not interested. I mean, here we are 2,000 years later. We're still interested in questions of gender and race identity and this and that, and they're yeah. not. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You, you, what you said is absolutely right. Um, you know, again, one of my favorite 
people here is Justin Martyr, because Justin was a you know he's a philosopher in the second century, and he saw how it was that these Christians, how somehow they loved each other in a way uh, that you know was not it didn't correspond with the kinds of divisions that you had you know culturally racially within you know the, the day and age that he he was in the Greco Roman world. He saw that, and he saw the the. This is one of the things that's really interesting. He saw the way in which you know even everybody else is terrified of death. They don't have any fear of death. There's a sense in which they almost welcome death because they know the author of life. That is something where Justin sees that in his eyes over and over in all these people, and that's eventually what goes and has you know it, it inspires him to go and to turn to the early Christian writings. Um, and there's more that there's more you can say to that to the, to, you know to the story as yeah. far as how it is that Justin goes and gets there. But that's one of the things that he says in his apologies. You know, it's it was from seeing the lives of these people yeah. uh, that were they were living these kinds of lives that he had no explanation for um, that that made it so that he had to go and start to consider the evidence. And I think, you know, so, so too with us, I think that the key is not to go and, you know, uh, you know, drop a Bible on somebody's head and hope that there's some cool effect, even though, (laughs) I mean, sometimes cool effects can happen. I'm not going to, I'm not, I don't want to rule that out. Um, The the key is that we, you know, by the, the power that God goes and gives, gives to us by his grace that we incarnate what it is that you know he has that he has given what it is that that he he has revealed because it's through the actual embodied gospel that the written gospel comes to be believed it's through seeing the gospel embodied that you can recognize you go back to the written gospel and think that's how this happens that's why this person is this way um and there's a sense in which we can we can put too much weight on the written text thinking Oh, if I prove the historicity of this, then everybody has to, you know, then they'll all turn and believe. I don't, I don't think so. I think it, it comes from seeing the gospel embodied that we come to recognize the veracity of the written gospel. That makes me think of the the quotation often attributed to Saint Francis of Assisi that you should preach the gospel every day, sometimes use words. Yeah, yeah. I, I you know I grew up actually seeing that one very often, and I I really appreciate it. I don't know if it actually goes back to him or not, um, oh, yeah. but whatever it is, I'm very thankful for it because that was yeah. something that produced a lot of really good fruit in my life. So I think you're yeah. I think you're absolutely right. Well, that is beautiful. Uh, thank you. Uh, Matthew Thomas, and I look forward to doing this again. Excellent. Thanks very much, Chris. Until then. (laughs) Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross. Be born for me, for you. And hail, hail the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. Chris and Matthew Thomas recorded this conversation on February 2nd, 2022. The Feast of the Presentation of the Christ Child at the Temple. Also Lunar New Year. Also Groundhog Day. Our music, What Child Is This?, is by Josh and Margot from the band The Great Space Coaster. Find their music at www.gscoasterband.com. The Image of the Dog, our logo 
is from a stained glass window at the monastery of Santo Domingo de Silos in Spain and is taken with the permission of the Dominican friars of England, Wales, and Scotland from their website, english.op.org. My name is Chris Odinitz. Please email me with comments, questions, ideas at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Talk to you soon. This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing.